good morning. We are, um, thank you for the comments on my t-shirt this morning already. It was a gift from uh, Chris and Alini. Um, it's got a story behind it, but not for today. <laughs> so, um, we're continuing our series, and I don't know if the first slide could come up, John, as well. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John this morning, and we're looking at the, the crucifixion, at the cross event, really. And one of the things I do when I'm preparing is I read lots of books or on my Kindle, and I listen to lots of podcasts and sermons on a topic. And I am listening to, to whatever I'm preparing for, and I'm just going out doing everyday stuff and maybe walking the dog if I'm taking the dog to school, or I'm in the car, I'm listening and kind of preparing in my heart and allowing it to kind of marinate. And I love it because I can get two things done at once, and I'm not very good at doing one thing at once, so it's kind of disastrous trying to do two things at once. But I was doing some prep for this talk, and I was in the gym, and I was getting ready to do a, a bench press, um, not with very much weight, and I was listening to this bit about the cross of Christ, and and I kind of thought, this is really a little bit strange, a bit incongruous, that here I am in a gym with everyone trying to look good and feel good and healthy, and I'm trying to think about the crucifixion. And I was like, oh, how does this thing that's so big, that overarches all of time itself, fit into everyday life? How does it fit into the mundane and just the stuff we go about? And as I was preparing, I was thinking about the, the nails, the crown of thorn, the agony that Jesus suffered. But in the passage in John chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, it's, John just writes it really simply. He says, carrying his own cross... He went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. It says, there they crucified him. They don't look at the gory details. They don't go on about the agony and the suffering and I had a real dilemma, is that what I'm meant to be looking at this morning? Or, and I just didn't sit comfortably. If you want to know about that, go and watch Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. But I really wanted us to look at the meaning of the cross. And what's interesting is John in his gospel has a number of little details that are not in uh, some of the other gospels. And these little details give us little glimpses into the meaning of the cross, glimpses into the character of God. So just before I try to unpack some of this, let's just uh, pray together. Father God, I, I find it impossible in some ways to, to represent your cross to your people this morning. We thank you that your cross is so magnificent that we will never comprehend it. We will never comprehend what it cost you, Father. Father, 
But I pray that we would get a glimpse of who you are through the cross this morning. I'd ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I want us to jump back a little bit to chapter 18. And in this chapter, a verse really struck me that Brian read a few weeks ago when he preached. And it's a verse I'd read so many times, but there was something in it that just stopped me. I think I must have missed the next five minutes of what Brian was saying because these words just kind of arrested me. So what is happening in chapter 18 is that Jesus has been met by this armed crowd and they've come to arrest him. And Jesus says in verse 4, who are you looking for? And they say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And in chapter 18, verse 6, it says, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. It just struck me. They drew back and fell to the ground. And I was like, what's going on here? So in the Old Testament, I am is the title for God. And in the book of Exodus, one day Moses is walking through the wilderness when he sees this bush burning. And I suppose there's nothing really strange in the fact that a bush in a really hot country could be on fire. It might just kind of go on fire in a kind of spontaneous combustion. But the thing that kind of awed and amazed Moses about this bush was that it did not burn out, that it kept on burning. And Moses knew that he was in the presence of God. And God said to Moses, my name is I Am. I am, just like this bush is inextinguishable, so I am the inextinguishable God. I am unchanging, everlasting, eternal. I am. And when Jesus said these words, I am, these words of divinity, something of the glory of God burst and blazed through his humanity. Something burst through and dazzled the, the crowd that had come to arrest them, dazzled them so much that they fell down on their faces. And Jesus is the revelation of God. But Jesus is not the complete revelation of God. He couldn't be, could he? Because if Jesus had been the total revelation of God, we could not have taken it in. And so, yes, Jesus is the revelation of God, but at the same time, Jesus is the veiling of God. John Wesley got it right in his great hymn when he said, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And when Jesus said, I am the veil of his humanity with these words wore thin. And the splendor and the light and the luster and the glory of God burst through his humanity, dazzling the crowd, causing them to fall on their faces. I remember the first time I saw or witnessed people in worship falling down. I just thought it was mental, to be honest. <laughs> and in some ways it is, isn't it? 
But if we're being met by the presence of God, we cannot but fall. And so the first thing that is being revealed here is the glory of God. The second thing I want us to think about is the security of God. Chapter 18 and verse 8, Jesus says to the armed crowd, Since I am the one you're after, then let those others go. So Jesus was surrounded by an armed crowd, and he knew what lay ahead of him. And yet he didn't think about himself. Rather, he thought about his disciples. He said to the armed crowd, take me and let these men go. And Jesus, he puts himself between danger and his disciples. And then on the cross, Jesus puts himself between the judgment of God and ourselves. And on the cross, Jesus said to the judgment of God, let these men go. And the judgment of God let us go. The song we used to sing when I was younger, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation, but here in the grace of God, I stand. And on the cross, Jesus put himself between the power of death and ourselves. For on the cross, Jesus said to the power of death, let these men go. And the power of death let us go. And the terror of death has been broken. And in Christ we shall live forever. And on the cross Jesus put himself between us and Satan. And on the cross Jesus said to Satan, let these men go. And Satan had to let us go. And Satan went defeated and disgraced. Let these people go. And the cross reveals the security of God. That nothing in our living, that nothing in our dying can separate us from the love of God. I remember hearing a missionary about a missionary who was martyred in the Congo. And he wrote these words in his journal just before he died. I know they are coming to kill me, but I can only laugh with joy and sing, safe in the arms of Jesus. Let these people go. And the cross reveals to us the security of God. And then in verse 10 of chapter 18, the cross reveals the pity of God. Jesus and his disciples are surrounded by a dangerous armed mob and with one last act of defiance and courage, 
Peter, he takes out his sword, and with a wild, desperate slash, he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant called Malchus. And John's gospel is the only gospel to record the servant's name. In the other gospel, he's just a man. And I wondered what happened to him. He was healed right there as he was coming to arrest Jesus, and we know that Jesus was still arrested. What happened to Malchus? I've also wondered how on earth did Peter manage to cut off his ear? (laughs) Um, Maybe he was going for the high priest, and they all kind of ducked, and he somehow got his ear. I, I don't know. I mean, Malchus was just lucky that Peter was a fisherman and not a swordsman, to be honest, but But what's amazing is that Luke in his gospel tells us that Jesus put out his hand and he touched the man and he healed him. We don't know if he picked up the ear and stuck it back on or if another ear grew. We don't know. But Jesus reached out and healed the wounded, lacerated face of a man who hated him, a man who wanted him dead. A man who was his enemy. This is Christ's last miracle. He heals the wounded, lacerated face of Malchus. And Jesus, as he's being arrested, he's filled with pity. He puts out his hand. He doesn't look for this man, Malchus, to be converted or saved or anything. He's just filled with pity and he heals this man. He touches him and makes him whole. In the midst of his persecution, in the midst of his panic, Jesus, with infinite pity, stretched out his hand in love. The cross also reveals to us the pain of God. Chapter 19, the verses I'm meant to be speaking on. In verse 34, it says, The cross reveals to us the pain of God. You see, the Roman soldiers, they were well trained for this task, and it talks about them thrusting the spear up on the left-hand side of Christ's ribcage, penetrating Christ's heart and piercing the heart of God. They pierced the heart of God, and there was pain in the heart of God. And this morning, the heart of God is still being pierced by the world. Yes, Christ's suffering for our sin is over. His redemptive suffering is a finished and accomplished work. But he still suffers in our suffering. His heart is still pained over the plight of his people. At this moment, all the suffering of all the people in pain there in Ukraine, together and individually, at this very moment is piercing the heart of God. At this moment, all the terrible pain of the refugees who have fled their homes Folk full of fear, of hopelessness, of grief, of loss, of pain. Their feelings of not being cared for by the West. All these people, 
their pain at this very moment is piercing the heart of God. And the people in Britain who feel rejected, who feel depressed, the children in our schools who, who can't get to school because they're so afraid, those who feel as though they're outcasts and misfits, who don't belong anywhere or to anyone, the pain of all the people we pass by on the street, we sit next to in the cafe or on the bus or underground, the people we don't even know and the people who don't even know who they are. The people who are living as though they're covered by a great big black fog. Their pain this morning is piercing the heart of God. And all the pain, and we just can't grasp this, I can't even really explain it or say it properly, but all the pain of a world of all the generations of men and women and young people who have ever lived and who will ever live are in some way eternally piercing the heart of God at this very moment. And your loneliness, the pain of that is piercing the heart of God. The pain of your grief, the pain of your sad heart is piercing the heart of God. I remember when I was at um, Bible College and we were doing a, a module on missions and the lecturer asked the class, they showed us a video of um, Christians working in the, the rubbish tips in the Philippines. And I remember she asked the class, um, how would you cope if you were there? And my instant, and I said it out loud, but I hadn't quite learned to control the inner voice. I'm still struggling with that, as we know. Um, I said, I think I'd lose my faith. And I looked at the suffering of the world. But I've learned a lot since then. I still find it very hard to look at the world and to cope with the suffering. And I wouldn't cope if it wasn't for the cross. For how could we worship and trust a God who is immune and indifferent to our pain? I remember preaching one time in a church in Bones, Bones Baptist Church. And I don't exactly remember what I said, but I do know that there was one doer old Scotsman who wrote a letter of complaint. There was more than one doer Scotsman there, but just one of them <laughs> uh, wrote a letter of complaint. And he was furious. He was furious that I suggested God felt pain. They quoted the doctrine of God's impassibility at me. That God is incapable of suffering, incapable of change. But my friends, our God is not a God who doesn't feel. No, our God suffered on the cross. And is still suffering with us as we suffer. And that is the God we trust and worship. 
It's not like the Buddha with his eyes closed, arms folded, leg crossed, and a detached, emotionless expression on his face. No. For when we turn to the cross, we see a twisted, tormented, tortured figure there. Arms stretched out in agony, with his mouth dry and parched, with a desperate thirst. We see God forsaken, God abandoned. And that is the God we can trust and worship. I'd like to read you a very small little story. At the end of time, billions of people are seated on a great field before God's throne. Most have shrunk back from the brilliant light that is before them. But some groups near the front are talking heatedly, not cringing with shame, but they are belligerent. How can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a young girl. She ripped open her sleeve and revealed a tattoo number from the Nazi concentration camps. We endured torture, beatings, death. In another group, a boy lowered his collar. What about this? As he shouted, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime, but for being black. In another group, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. And far across the plain, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in this world. How lucky God is to be in heaven, where all is sweetness and light, where there is no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? God lives a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of the groups sent forth a leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. A Jew, a person of color, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a Thelodomite child. And in the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other until at last they were ready to present their case and they felt it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Before he was qualified, he must become like them. And their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him mad and out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let 
him be tortured. At last, let him know what it means to be alone. Then let him die, so nobody can ever doubt that he died. And let there be many people to witness his shame and embarrassment. And as each leader pronounced each part of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the crowd. But when they had at last finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one had uttered a word. No one moved. Because all knew that God had already served his sentence. And the cross reveals to us the pain of God. Fifthly, this morning, the cross reveals to us the victory of God. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, we read, When he had received this drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what do you hear when you hear these words, it is finished? Well, I suppose it depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? You might be going, it is finished. Ah, I've finished the project I had to do. You might go, ah, it is finished. The meal is over and I can leave the table. Or one I remember far too often, it is finished. The relationship is done. Uh, I don't ever want to see you again. Ouch. And it all depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? What do you hear when you hear Jesus Christ say, it is finished? And the Greek word that is being used is, is a word that is more than just about circumstance. It's a word that points not to the end of something, but the completion of something. It means the debt is paid. The project is finished. I've accomplished the goal. I've crossed the finish line. It is finished. And Jesus, in his dying words, I don't think it was a murmur of, oh, it is finished. And he's tapping out and submitting. It is one word. Finished. It's a word like a shepherd might say. Imagine being a shepherd out on the hillside and at the end of the day, he's brought all the sheep in. He's got them all back and he shouts out, finished. The day is over. The sheep are safe in the sheepfold. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the greatest shepherd, our great shepherd, and he said, it is finished. I can imagine him closing his eyes, and I can picture him picturing us, picturing all the sheep, picturing us being gathered safely into the arms of God. And he is saying, finished, safe, 
I've brought them in because of what I'm doing for them on the cross. And as he closes his God in human flesh eyes, he's picturing those who are hurt, and that he's brought them in to heal them. I can picture him picturing us as he takes the thorns out of us. Out of our lives where we've become so entangled. And he's bringing us back in safely. Finished. It's also though the voice of victory. I love this picture. Scotland had won. And usual thing I know and they hung on till the end. The whistle had just blown. And I can hear Hogg there screaming, Finished! We have won! It's not a finished with a murmur. It is finished. And when Jesus says it is finished, it's as if he's on the battlefield and the war is won. That death, has been defeated. Sin, evil and sin, have been defeated by the cross of Christ. And yet, yes, we face a battle in our lives every day. But he is declaring, it is finished. He's won. The victory is his. He's gathered in his sheep. He has completed God's plan of salvation for us. That's what it means when he says, it is finished. And the cross reveals the victory of God. And lastly, but not really shortly, Lastly, it reveals the majesty of God. In chapter 19, verse 14, Pilate, he says to the Jews, he says, this is your king. And then in verse 20, above the cross, Pilate has written the words, this is the king of the Jews. And Pilate, he writes it three times. He writes it in Aramaic for the Jews to understand but the Jews don't want a king who dies on the cursed tree. They don't want a king who is cursed by God. It's written in Latin for the Romans, but the Romans don't want a king who is crucified on a cross because not even a Roman citizen, no matter what they have done, would be crucified on a cross. It's too terrible. It was just for the outcasts and the slaves. No Roman citizen would be crucified. They didn't want him as king. It was written in Greek for the Greeks, and the Greeks certainly didn't want him as king. The Greeks didn't like the idea of a, a king, a dying king, or a suffering God. For, for the Greeks, a suffering God is a contradiction in terms. But God is declaring on the cross, this is the king. This is the king, and the cross declares the majesty of God. And so I want to ask you a question, and it sounds so trivial, and 
I don't mean it to be, but is he your king? We sing these words from the song, King of my heart. I mean, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days. But really, is he our king? Have we taken the crown from the throne of our own selfhood and placed it on the brow of Christ? Have we? Really? John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, John says that in heaven there is a throne. And John tells us that there is a throne that is not empty or unoccupied. But he tells us that there is someone sitting on the throne. And John tells us that it is the Lamb of God who is on the throne. The Lamb of God sits on the throne in control of the whole universe, controlling everything through unconditional sacrificial love. And around the throne from which the Lamb reigns, all the angels and archangels and seraphims are singing the song of the Lord. They're singing the same song, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But is he our king? Leslie Dixon Weatherhead was a Methodist minister. And one time he took his old retired father to see or to hear Handel's Messiah. And he records in his journal that when they sang the Hallelujah Chorus, everybody stood up. That when they sang King of Kings and Lord of Lords, they couldn't stay seated and everybody stood up. Everybody there in the concert hall was standing for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Leslie Weatherhead, he, he says that along with the 3,000, he stood up. And he looks down at his father, an old retired Scottish minister. And he's just sitting there. He hasn't stood. And his father's got his hands, no, his head in his hands. And he's crying and crying. And he bends down to listen to his father. And he hears his father saying, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's my Jesus they're singing about. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. This morning, is he your Jesus? Is he your king? He longs to be your Jesus more than you've ever known. This morning, 
no matter how long you've known him, he wants to know you more. This morning, is he your Jesus? Maybe Anthony and the worship team can come back up. And as they're coming up, just take a moment in the silence. Is he your king? Is he your Jesus? And the cross reveals the glory of God. I am. And the cross reveals the security of God, that we are safe in the arms of Jesus. And the cross reveals the pity of God, that everything was going on, he still had pity and compassion for Malchus, an individual. And the cross reveals the the pain of God, that God suffers with us in our suffering. And the cross reveals the victory of God. It is finished. And the cross reveals the majesty of God. This morning, is he your Jesus?